welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1756, an unmarried Quaker woman wrote Deborah Morris her book, 1756, in, of all things, a book entitled The American Instructor or Young Man's Best Companion. That might seem to have been an odd choice, but as my guest Sarah Damiano explains, it was a very useful book for Deborah Morris to have because Deborah Morris was a landlady, a retailer, and an investor. In this, she was far from alone among 18th century American women. How women in two New England cities use credit in pursuit of profit is explained in Domino's book, To Her Credit, Women, Finance, and the Law in 18th Century New England. Sarah Damiano is Assistant Professor of History at Texas State University. Sarah Damiano, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. I am very glad to be speaking with you today. So let's first talk, let's spend some time. Uh, I think the two of us are, you are on paper now as an official expert on credit. I am merely an enthusiast for teaching about credit. Um, and I've never ceased to, well, for one thing, uh, at Colonial Williamsburg, I'm reliably informed by people there that the most common question that's asked is, how much is that in today's money? Um, and people get very confused when they find out how, at least in Colonial, certainly in Colonial Virginia, and I think in Colonial New England, people had to pay if they were going to use coins. So we should explain why credit's so important and and all the wonderful ways that credit is tied, and I start to sound like a a nut here, that credit is tied to just about literally everything else. Yes, it it absolutely is is tied to virtually every other facet of colonial life, we could argue. And so I think a helpful way to think about this for starters is to imagine what would happen if you lived in colonial America, we'll say colonial Boston, and you went into a shop and you wanted to purchase something and how that might look different than if you went into a shop to buy something today. Wouldn't Wouldn't I just give them coins? I would just give them a pounds or shillings or pence or the colonial, the English money. It's an English colony, Boston, it's in Massachusetts. I am loyal to the king and I'll just give the king's face to the merchant. Well, you might, but the thing is that there most people did not have lots of ready money on hand. They didn't necessarily have cash or coin with them when they went into shops. And that's in part due to a limit in how much money was circulating, but also due to structures of payment at the time. So for example, sailors and soldiers and, and various other people were paid only after they they finished, say, a, a tour of duty. And so oftentimes when people went into a shop, they did not have that cash in their pocket to pay for something, nor did they have something like a credit card today, which is a modern institution mediating between two people. And so instead, personal credit, the ability or the willingness of one person to lend to another was was central for for making the economy tick. Right. So um, you should explain why there's a limit on circulation of money in the colonies, because this is the first hurdle to overcome, I think, for modern conceptions. Um, the, there's, a, there's a law about this, I think, that the British Mint or the, the Bank of England can't, can only circulate a certain amount of money in the, in the colonies. 
Um, is that is that is that is my memory correct there? I believe so, but in terms of the framing the framing of my book, I um, I really look at what's going on on the ground, and I think what is so striking in in every kind of record we look at from this time period, whether it's shopkeepers' account books documenting their transactions or court records, mm-hmm. that the credit is that borrowing and lending between individuals is the primary way in which assets are are circulating. Right. We just that's we see basically uh, you look at a store ledger in Virginia and I think it's the same in Newport or Boston. It's a long list of debits. You know basically you're you're judging your inflow and outflow by who you owe and who owes you. And that's Precisely. how it's done. It's it's all on the books. Uh, which is weird. Um, so, as I say to students, the first credit, the only the credit card that most people have is their face, um, and so it's based on. Well, we'll get into that. Um, this is why it's tied into sociability. It's tied into gender, as as most of your books about. It's tied into all sorts of cultural issues, um, many, many, many things. So, your your what was the question that you began your research asking? And how did that change over time? Did it change over time? Are you fortunate enough to have the same question that at the beginning of your book that you began your research with? Gosh, that takes me way back to the early <laughs> early stages of my research. So I think, so for starters, I actually got into this topic through some earlier research as an undergraduate and then as an early graduate student, do, looking at some other aspects of women and the courts. And at that point, I was looking mainly at Newport. And what's so striking, I think, for all of us who go through 18th century court records is that we're always looking for the fat case files. We think that's where the good story lies, the slander cases, the sex crimes, the robberies, the murders. And those cases are few and far between. And about 80% of cases or more concern credit and debt because it was so important, as we were just talking about. And so I think my my questions at the beginning were not uh, nothing particularly complicated. It was really how does this world work? And even in these kind of basic, straightforward, uncontested cases, and maybe we can talk later about why they're uncontested. Um, what are women doing and how how can I make their actions come to life in a kind of concrete way for myself and, and also for my readers? So were you surprised when you first looked at this as an undergraduate to find women involved in these court cases? Did you think this is not or, – or were you not expecting that? Because I know a lot of listeners are going to be surprised already that women were involved in these sorts of cases. I think in some ways, yes, I was surprised because it does it goes against a lot of what what we learn in a um, you know in in grade school and in high school and outside of women's history courses. So we often think that women's place throughout history until the modern era was in the home, or we emphasize marriage law, and we think that because most women were married. That meant that women lacked legal rights and economic power, and that by extension, women wouldn't be involved in the courts. But in fact, 
that is really not the case. And so about 10% of debt cases involve women. And the more you dig into these records, the more you can find women really involved in the economy and the legal system. So briefly, um, what's your argument? What's your thesis? Sure. So my argument has has two different threads. And so the the primary argument is that women's financial work was a essential vital component to the functioning of the two port economies I study, which are Boston and Newport. And so I think there are two threads that I want to just quickly pull out of that. So one is this idea of financial work. And so we often think of work as productive, as making something. Mm-hmm. And we don't think of financial activity as work. And so part of what I'm doing is recasting women's work, which is a very traditional category in the scholarship, to say that it includes the managing of credit and debt. And the other component of that, when I um, emphasize port economies in my argument, is the specific demographic features. And so these are places where women outnumber men and men are leaving home for long periods of time. And so women's financial work is essential for preserving uh, the economies and the social structures of these cities. The second thread of my argument concerns change over time. And so I think we will, again, be talking about this a little bit later. But I also argue that by the late 18th century, there are a series of intertwined cultural and legal changes that narrow women's authority in matters of finance and law. So we want to emphasize um, a couple things there that um, one is the, um, we think, one is obviously we're going to get to this in just a second, defining what home is, a women's workplaces in the home. Then of course, home or household is the term of art, becomes a very fraught and important question. What is it becomes a very fraught and important question to answer. So we'll get to that. Second, this is there are port cities. Men are gone. They're, you know, what, something like 45% of the British merchant fleet in 1770 is actually colonial. So that if you take the entire merchant fleet of Britain in total, 45% of it comes from the 13 colonies. So there are, and, and, and I, I'm presuming, I don't know the stats of it, that the majority of that 45% is located in New England. Um, and so there are lots of people who have to, or men who are leaving to sail. People who are familiar with the relationship with John and Abigail Adams, you have an analog there, a high-flown analog, uh, where he's gone for such lengths of time, and she is very much in charge of the financial well-being of the family. Look at Woody Holton's book about Abigail Adams for this. And she has to invest. She has to do all these things with some advice, perhaps occasionally, but she doesn't really need advice. She has an idea of what she, how the family can become rich, basically, not just survive, but become rich. Abigail Adams is not unique. There are, in other words, there are thousands of women like her uh, in Boston, Newport. Is that that's essentially your argument? Who are who are, in fact, driving the helping to drive the economy forward as they seek profit? Precisely, and I think that Abigail Adams, for good reason, has received a lot of attention from historians. She's a fascinating figure, and her life is extraordinarily well documented in her back and forth letters with John, and. Many of the women I study, we we don't have written records that they authored. And so one of the things I try to do in my research then is to use this very vast archive of court records to 
access these women's lives and and their work. And these are records that for the most part are not authored with the goal of, of capturing women's activities per se, but when we read them closely, we can really see how how enmeshed women are in the economy. And, and you're absolutely right. That changes how we look at someone like Abigail Adams and makes her part of a larger group of women mm. rather than an exception. So it's like um, these court records, and we'll get to them at the end of the podcast because they're fascinating. But they're, of course, as you already said, they're never as, they're never as long as we want. Um, and there's never the documentation because there must be letters, you know, uh, there certainly are, I know there are letters. I found a couple of them. When you have a better known person whose papers survive, you can find the letters going back and forth about, please don't call the loan in yet. And that sort of thing. Um, but it's like looking, um, at an atomic detector and seeing little particles going through. And that's all we see is just that one little flash of this person, it's so, it, it makes, it's very, it's poignant sometimes. You see, this is the one evidence of that woman now that we have of her life. And then, and you can get to start to, you can start to imagine and wonder things about her when you're in the archive for a long time. Uh, um, th- but these, this is social history. These are where people are like subatomic particles flashing through the detector and they just leave a brief track in our vision and then they go off coming from, we don't know where to, we don't know, coming from, we don't know where to going to, we don't know where. That's an interesting analogy. I like that. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And so even if I can't tell a complete birth to death story of any one woman's life, what I can do is create a composite picture of free white women in the port cities of Boston and Newport and what they were doing. Did you find any, I mean, you, you don't mention them, and I, so I presume that you would have mentioned them. Did you find any free black women uh, involved in this sort of thing? I find a a small number of black women and and it in some instances can be hard to even tell whether they are free or enslaved because right. they are primarily um referred to by their skin color and so mm-hmm. the term used in the records at the time would have been a negro woman. Mm-hmm. And and so is that always used women, by the way? Is that always used? Would that, or do we perhaps some women might be black, but we don't know it? So the the term black is in existence at the time, but the term I, the two terms that I see in um, in legal records are Negro and mulatto. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. tended that to be how you, yeah. um, the racial descriptors that were used during mm-hmm. the time. So, but there there aren't many. There's not much evidence, and you don't know whether they're enslaved or they're free. Right. It tends to be a single line in something like an account book mm-hmm. that a, for instance, that a woman named Dinah was owed three shillings, mm-hmm. um, a Negro woman named Dinah. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why she was owed three, three shillings. We can use our, our knowledge of black women's involvement in the economy to speculate. Perhaps she was a laundress or a servant and was owed a bit of money that way. But but again, we don't know. And I think the, right, the circumstances that lead to the documentation of white women's activities are, are limited and give us a partial picture. And that picture is even more fragmentary when it comes to free and enslaved Black women. So uh, you begin this story around 1730? Um, so what do, are yes. Boston and Newport like in 1730? Uh, we call, I call them cities, um, but they're really, by our standards, towns. 
um, but they're extraordinarily well connected and cosmopolitan and networked towns. That's that's exactly right. And so Boston and Newport are the two largest port cities in New England, and they're in the top five in terms of the largest port cities in mainland British North America. And so as of 1730, Boston has slightly more than 12,000 people. Uh, Newport has around 6,000. And so again, to this question of are they cities or towns, by the standards of the time, they're port cities. But but certainly they're still small community-oriented places. They're not terribly large. Newport is about a mile long, Boston about two miles long. But as, as you mentioned, they are very much connected to what we call the Atlantic world. So all of the continents that are bordering the Atlantic Ocean and are enmeshed in trade relationships with each other. And so the specific role that these port cities play is that and a variety of raw materials that are produced in New England's hinterland, things like um, grains and fish, and, well, fish from the ocean, of course, and um, timber are exported to the Caribbean and to Western Europe by way of these port cities. And in turn, uh, Caribbean produced molasses and imported um, European goods are flowing into the region through these cities. And so really, the entire economies of Boston and Newport are oriented toward this trading system or in some way supporting it. So even something like a tavern, for instance, that tavern is in part going to be serving sailors who are passing through the region or ship captains. The shopkeepers are going to be selling imported goods in their shops. There are barrel makers and ship makers and all of all of these different trades. And so these are very much um, places enmeshed in, in this broader world. And so you asked specifically about uh, these places in, in 1730 or so. And so that's an important marker because the cities are really on the precipice of some important transformations. And so the 18th century is a period of commercialization of uh, commercial transactions happening with increasing frequency and rapidity. And those trade networks become more and more dense um, from about 1730 onward. But there are also going to be um, some things that strain these port cities in really important ways. So from the 1740s onward, there are a series of imperial wars, and we were briefly talking about that too. And so that is going to place demographic strains on these cities and make them increasingly female dominated so that by the time we get to the revolution, about one in five households is headed by women. Hmm. That, that much. That's, that's amazing. And so you, any, at any given time, the population in both of these port cities is predominantly, let's repeat this, is predominantly female because of the number of men who are off at sea. Absolutely. So there are roughly five adult women for every four adult men. And so that's another way of thinking about it. And so that household statistic of one in five, that's things like census takers or tax collectors going door to door uh, and tracking. But, but in practice, you're right. It's likely even more households at any given time where men are away. So let's, let's jump to this. What is a household? And so we say a woman's place is in the home. 
and that's our idea that women are in, in some sense uh, confined, like the like in a, har- a harem almost um, uh, in 18th century America. Um, but w- in an urban place, well, let's leave the farms out of this. That's a separate story. What's what's a what's a home or a household in Newport and Boston? So I very much prefer the term household as as you noted, over home. And I think the reason for that is that home has all kinds of connotations layered into it, emotional connotations. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are actually very much linked to the 19th century, that idea that a woman's place is in the home and that a home is a refuge from the conflict and the messiness and the competitiveness of the workplace. That's an idea of the 1800s. It's not right. one of the 1700s. I just want to note that this is like a nice historical thinking point, uh, the, the need for a precise definition and to avoid any anachronistic um, emotions or uh, anachronistic definitions being somehow attached to the, the word home. So you're going to use household, which is, yeah. So uh, what is a household? So, so I mean household in two different ways. So one is in terms of a cluster of people who live together, right? The household. And the reason I think that it's a useful term in that sense is that people live together who were not necessarily members of the same nuclear family. And so a household could include a, a patriarch, his spouse, children, but it could also include servants, enslaved people, borders, tenants. And we know that renting was extremely common in these port cities. And so upwards of 80% of people were renting rather than living in in residences that they owned. And so household is useful for thinking about the collection of people that would be in in a space. But the other way in which I mean household is, is as a physical structure and in terms of what goes on in that structure. And so a household in the 1700s, 1700s is a residence. It's a dwelling place where people live and eat and sleep, but it's also a place of business. And so many businesses are run out of households. Uh, Businesses are very much household and family operations. And households also are not, not private in the way that we tend to think of that 19th century home. So households are very much porous and public public spaces. People are coming and going. They are places where legal agreements are being forged, where activities of legal consequence are happening, where officials like sheriffs and constables are arriving to serve people with legal notice. And so so the household is is really this, this vibrant center of of all facets of urban life. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this in relation to the South. And um, you know, the architectural historians make, uh, up until like 1800, the majority of houses in, say, Virginia or even low country Carolina have two rooms. I don't know what it's like in New England. Um, but uh, the uh, the way it's, it's really interesting how ingrained in us, even the physical structure of a house is, uh, to think of differentiation, specialization, in a way which is just absolutely beside the point and just incomprehensible in the 18th century. And that goes uh, for physical structure, turns out also to apply to use. So many things of necessity have to happen in the same room simultaneously. Um, And many people are involved, are are near each other in ways I think that would 
um, even that, especially after not even even before the last year, um, many people would be in cheek by jowl in ways that would be strike become very uncomfortable to us. I think that's people always talk about smell as that what they imagine the past to be different. I think it's the proximity of different people to each other in the same place would be very odd to us. I think that's that's absolutely right. And one one story that this really makes me think of is of a family named the Hughes family from oh, yeah. <laughs> 18th century Boston. And so the Hughes family, they're a family of, of tanners. They own a, tanner, a tannery or they run a tannery is, in the center of Boston. We have to say it's on, on very low on the, on the category from medieval to early modern, uh, through the early modern period, being a tanner is like the worst kind of artisan uh, because of the smell. But anyway, go ahead. Ulysses S. Grant uh, was re- resented it greatly that he's from a family of tanners. But it's also it's also highly uh, profitable, and for for this family, it was a it offered them hope of of upward mobility. And so, in any case, in um, in 1739, this family gets in a nasty dispute with a merchant who had loaned them quite a bit of money um, to establish this tanning business, and. In a, a really fascinating episode, one of um, the wife of one of the tanners, a woman named Abigail Hughes, is in the third trimester of pregnancy as this dispute is unfolding. And on several occasions, the two men who run the tannery are imprisoned as a result of various debt suits. And so it's Abigail who summons the merchant into her chamber and speaks with him and um confronts him about the ways in which he is persisting in in harassing her family. And so in this moment, it is both a room of um, rest and repose and preparation for labor for her. She has begun to surround herself with female attendants. And yet it's also a place of financial and legal negotiation as she's fighting with a prominent Boston merchant. And I think, talk about wildly different kinds of events occurring in the same space. That is, I think, a a really clear example of that. There's a that's a such a it's such a fantastic example. Because here we've got, I mean, in an anti-liturgical place, Boston, lying in is such a liturgical act, or religious liturgical feminine it's really a powerful thing uh, when you draw the female comfort together as you approach um, labor, which is could be is a kind of death, even if things work out, um, and could well lead to death. So it's a very fraught moment. And yet at the same time, she's in an economic, she's also the household's an economic unit to put things kind of like blandly. It's much more than that to be an economic unit. It's uh, it's the hope. There's it, What I love about that example is um, when you sort of read into it, there's um, everything's about hope for the future. It's for the, the hope that comes for her birth. It's also the hope for the economic prosperity and the f- financial future of these tanners, these upwardly mobile, uh, the Hugheses who want to be somebody. They want to be who want to be uh, better off than they were when they began tanning. Exactly, and I and I think maybe we should clarify here too, um, lying in that we've been yeah. talking <laughs> about, and so that um, so early modern practices of pregnancy that continued into the 18th century and to North America dictated that labor and childbirth were primarily uh, 
female processes. And so a woman would surround herself with female attendants, her servants, her friends, her midwife, her mother in Abigail's case, and they would close the room off from the rest of the world. They would even um, stuff the keyholes with um, materials so that no one could peek in. And men were excluded then from, from this environment. And so for a man to enter was, was transgressive and inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of Abigail, her room wasn't fully transformed into this lying in room, but it was certainly on the way there that she had summoned and surrounded herself with all of these female, female attendants. And I think, so I think that's an important detail for appreciating mm-hmm. what's going on. Could there. you give some other examples of, of how women are involved in this urban uh, credit economy? We have, this is Abigail Hughes fighting for her family's livelihood and well-being. Um, what are some other examples of how women are uh, also uh, fighting for their family profit? Sure. So let's talk about another fascinating woman that I came across. And so Temperance Grant is a widow and shopkeeper from Newport, Rhode Island. And when she's still fairly uh, fairly young, um, her husband dies an early death in a gunpowder explosion at a, um, there's an explosion at his warehouse and he's very badly burned and succumbs to those burns. And so Temperance Grant as the widow becomes the de facto head of her household and she becomes administrator of her husband's estate and the family's shopkeeping business that previously she had run in tandem with her husband, she now takes over and she becomes a very prominent shopkeeper in Newport for, for many, many decades and finds herself in um, some nasty disputes with other members of the Newport community. Okay, we're going to get to some of those disputes in just a little bit when we talk about the courts, because these all, it all, things all. This is how you know about these things is through the court. But you you, you say uh, that that when you build up a picture of credit, it gives us a picture of how women uh, quote you demonstrate proficiency in traveling through their city and region. And I took traveling almost to mean almost metaphorical as well. Um, there is a way in which you, by building up this picture of credit. Um, you see what networks um, you see what, how, how, how do women travel in a city and region? How can you see that and sort of mapped out through credit? Sure. And so I mostly was thinking about this in, in a literal way, first of all. Right. And so I think one way in which my, my book challenges the way we think about women's place in the 1700s is first by changing how we think about the household that we already mm-hmm. spoke about but the other is by changing how we think about women's presence outside of the household. And so we tend to think about women being cloistered in residential spaces, not being out and about very much. But when we look at the daily work of borrowing and lending money, moving through one's city and one's region was a crucial constitutive component of that. So whether it is walking to a shop to buy goods or um, dunning or trying to collect from one's debtor. The way in which you do you do that, the way you collect from a debtor is you walk to their residence or their shop and you, you have a conversation with them. And maybe you threaten to sue them or negotiate an extension of their loan, whatever it may be. But that, that involves movement. 
And in example after example, I see women traveling. I see them. Um, I one woman takes a boat from Providence to Newport to collect a debt. Another rents a horse to travel from one of the surrounding towns of Boston into Boston to visit her lawyer. Uh, women describe walking through the cities door to door and um, trying to speak to one person to collect a debt, getting the runaround and going to someone else's house. And so I think this changes, again, where we think about women, where they can and can't be during this time. We see that, in fact, they can be virtually everywhere. And it reminds us then that all of these places that we thought about as male-dominated places, in fact, women were were present there too. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, there's also a way, and it, the metaphorical thing is is that they they know how to do this. Um, they've learned from someone else, probably mother, uh, maybe the mother, but they've learned from they've learned how to done how to collect a debt. They've they've had to do all these things, not just from books. There's a, so there's a culture of this that predates these women. Once again, this is like the subatomic particle. We don't know where they learned it from, but we can infer that there was some sort of culture of doing this that they knew that they had learned from. Sure, and I think I think that's the case both for women and for men. Mm-hmm. And so, I think one one misconception we sometimes have about this time period, or another misconception, is that. Um, because men tended to receive more extensive educations than mm-hmm. women, they more men um, were fully literate and possessed um, greater levels of numeracy and mathematical skill. That that meant that the economic realm was was closed off to women. But in fact, all of these these practical skills that you're referencing, right? These skills that are traveling from person to person, they are being absorbed by both boys and girls, women and men, as as they watch what is going on around them. And I think particularly in the case of women, women um, often are their husband's informal partners during um, the duration of marriage. But in most cases, women are, are outliving men and are widows and in many cases go on to administer or settle their husband's estates. And so even some writers from the time period talk about marriage as a kind of preparation for estate administration ultimately, and that a a wife should make careful note of what's going on because eventually she's going to have an even more significant responsibility here. Um, so debt suits, um, as you've indicated, 80, 80%, uh, that's a rough, a guesstimate, 80% of the court records that are, you know, hidden, uh, in, or if they've survived in Virginia, maybe not, um, are turn out to be debt suits. Uh, they're not the juicy stuff that we want. Um, people were always suing each other about for, for, for debt. Um, we'll get to some sort of bigger questions because I'm I'm curious. I'm so delighted to have someone to ask you know th- things I think about um, about debt and credit. So let's push those back for a minute. But I'm I'm just curious. First of all, there's a very clear difference um, about women as creditors and debtors, which I thought was fascinating uh, because men creditors debtors it's sort of like it's fifty fifty, right? I mean that's but not so with women. So how does that work? Sure. And and I think maybe we should even back up for mm-hmm. a second mm-hmm. to why this distinction matters. Mm-hmm. And that's that the 
the legal system by this time overwhelmingly favors creditors. And so in most of these debt suits, these hundreds and hundreds of debt suits, a, a term that we're talking about, creditors are, are winning, again, upwards of 80% of them unchallenged. And so if you're a creditor going to court, that's a very powerful position mm-hmm. to be in. If you are a debtor, um, in many cases, you are choosing not to contest the creditor's lawsuit. And even if you do contest, you have very limited, narrow legal grounds on which to do so. We, I should probably also, um, we should, this, people probably today listening to this podcast would be terrified to be sued for debt. But we have to explain, this is sort of a, this is a normal feature of business and commercial life in colonial America because of everything being on ledgers, right? Absolutely. And so by by one statistic from another historian's research, on average, white adult men could expect to appear in court at least once every 10 years during their adult lives, if not, if not more frequently. And so it was not a rare occurrence. It was not a shameful occurrence. People who are involved in certain kinds of business are involved in 10 or even 30 cases a, a court term. And, and as you were saying, it, it's linked to the nature of personal credit, that there are no mediating financial institutions to whom you can have, have recourse besides the courts. You know, so today, if you um, don't pay your credit card debt, there is a, um, a debt collection agency that that can be passed off to, and they will engage in the work of doing that. But in the 18th century, if you couldn't work things out face-to-face or by correspondence, your next step was to sue someone. Mm-hmm. And so some some people and um, some scholars even talk about that as a kind of debt recording process, a way of putting additional pressure on on your debtor and saying, okay, now it's really time to pay off. Yeah, I was quite puzzled the first time I encountered, uh, realized that a person who was, I was reading a correspondence between two people and that uh, they seemed chatty and friendly, and yet they had a debt suit against each other. One of them had a debt suit against the other. This was just business, nothing personal. I mean, it was it was nothing personal, literally, in this case. It was just, this had to be done. Exactly. Um, so were, were women generally creditors or debtors? We never got to that point. Right. Yes. Um, so women overwhelmingly are appearing in court as creditors hmm. rather than than as debtors. And so in about two thirds of, of the cases in which women are litigants, they are appearing as creditors. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind for a couple of reasons. So one in thinking about the ways in which the financial system and the courts are either empowering women or making women vulnerable, women are in this favorable position. And so um, in the majority of instances, and so that it's important in that sense. And the other interesting thing about this, though, is it raises questions about women's financial savvy and the choices that they're making and their access to capital and to lines of credit. And I think it reflects the fact that women are important lenders, particularly propertyed women, are important lenders and sources of capital in their communities, making making loans to other people. And, and in contrast, that likely outside of court and prior to that debt litigation, um, women certainly are receiving loans, but um, 
not necessarily landing in court as a result. So maybe they're careful to pay their debts, maybe um, they're receiving some degree of sympathy from, from their creditors and not being sued. Um, but certainly when we get to the realm of the courts, um, most women are, are finding the courts to be an institution that, that empowers them if they are on, on that correct side of the law, so to speak, if they are creditors. Now, how, do, how does this court, how does a, a suit for debt work in, in Boston or Newport? Um, I'm assuming, although I mean, too many other assumptions about this are wrong, that women don't show up in court to represent themselves. Um, they must, are they, they're hiring lawyers or how, how does it work? Sure. So, so in some cases, um, women are going to the physical space of the courtroom themselves. And so every, uh, every court session, I should say, begins with what's called the calling of cases, where the clerk is essentially going through and taking, taking attendance, we could say. Mm-hmm. And, and someone has to, to speak on behalf of each um, case and say, yes, I'm here and want to proceed with this case. And in some cases, Women are noting in records, I was in court and answered every time I was called. I was, I was there. Hmm. Um, so, so the courtroom itself is not, not an entirely male space, hmm. and it's important to keep that in mind. That's fascinating. Um, I never, I, if you had, before I read your book, I would not have sort of I would not have explained that to anybody, but it would not have occurred to me. Right. And I think it's an example, again, of once I started thinking about the mechanics and how mm-hmm. this worked, it, Gave me another place I could see could see women's involvement, mm-hmm. but but you mentioned lawyers, yeah. so so let's talk more about that. So by by the 1750s or so, lawyers are a virtual necessity if you are going to proceed to court in a debt suit, and the reason for that is because the courts are really prioritizing procedural adherence and properly drafted documents, and so if you don't have a properly drafted document, your case is getting getting thrown it's out. It's a very interesting. So, it's a very yeah. interesting moment in a different history history of professionalization. Uh, um, you know, uh, you see this everywhere in the colonies, uh, where everyone's. It's yeah, you, know, you see where people want. There's an increasing need for proper lawyers by the 1750s um, who can do things like lawyers do. Uh, rather than the sort of ad hoc, sort of every gentleman his own lawyer kind of attitude that had prevailed up until that time. It's really a fascinating change. And it's a change that's in part driven by the lawyers themselves, because if a lawyer's on one side of the case and the other side doesn't have a lawyer, um, that creates an opportunity for that lawyer to to pounce and point out those, Mm -hmm. those inaccuracies. Yeah. And so, so women and men alike, when they are, and initiating a lawsuit are are hiring lawyers, and for most lawyers, debt cases are are really the bulk of their business. Um, so even someone like John Adams. Um, so we talked about Abigail earlier, and we're back to John, I suppose. But um, we tend to think of him his his legal career in terms of the famous legal cases yeah. that he took on. So the massacre he, case, for example, he wasn't making money on that one. He was making his money, you know, years earlier when he was handling one debt case after another. And there's even a moment in, uh, I believe it's either his either his journal or um, his memoir, but he uh, he writes that 
part of being a good lawyer and developing your business when you go to a town is to get to know people in the community and to speak to people. And he specifically mentions that you want to speak to the widows. Hmm. And so women are, are part of lawyers' clientele. And so whether one is a woman or a man, to initiate a lawsuit, part of what you do is reach out to a lawyer, make contact with a lawyer, um, either by sending a letter if you live far away from your lawyer, or in many cases, speaking with them in person if they're someone local. That lawyer is going to help draft the documents and advance the case through the courts. But all along the way, there are going to be a series of decisions that the litigant, um, the female client, is is going to have a say in. Mm-hmm. Um, briefly, there's another way that women are involved in the credit economy, and we've and we kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, it's the fact that households being constructed as as you said they are, as we as, as as you believe, as we believe, then the power of being a witness is also something that's within uh, the feminine grasp. Uh, so women act as witnesses. Can you explain the importance of that and, and, and how that worked? Sure. So there are, I think, three layers to being a witness. So first one can be a witness just by happening to be in a room as a transaction is unfolding and being someone who sees and hears that. And that is very important as a as a forum for legal and economic learning to to learn how to conduct these transactions so that later on one can assume those roles for themselves. Um, it also confers a degree of power and knowledge in terms of knowing who's indebted to who, who's in financial trouble, and so on. The next layer is being a signatory on documents. And so a lot of those documents that establish credit relationships require the signatures of one or two witnesses. And in many cases, it's women who, again, by virtue of being in the room, are, are pulled in and asked, can you sign this document as a witness? And that then becomes a formal role. Those documents can be filed in, in court. They survive in archives for us to look at today. So there's a degree of permanence there. And then finally, when some small number of these transactions become the subject of of disputes and of contested cases, some women go on to testify in court and, and to speak about what they saw and heard or what they signed. And so I think one final point on this is that there's a kind of narrowing across those layers. And so all women, um, free and enslaved, white and black, can be observers to transactions. But only free white women are able to sign documents and to testify in court. And so there's a differential access to power here Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Um, As we've alluded to earlier, um, there's change over time in, in this in this story. It's it's history. There's change over time. Um, might not be not might not be able to figure out causality, but we can certainly see change over time. Um, why why did um, the laws and social conventions uh, concerning debt change or change over the 18th century? Um, you suggest that it's both um, the revolution as well as new understandings of class and gender. Both of them sort of working. T- together. That's a lot there. Um, uh, but could you explain um, how, so that by that, by 1830, things were very different in terms of women's involvement in, in the the household is different, as we've, as we've alluded to, 
and women's involvement in the financial economy is very different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is there is a lot there, and so and I think this is something that absolutely needs to be picked up um, in greater detail mm -hmm. by by other historians in in the future. And so so the two threads that you mentioned. So first of all is this question of um, class differentiation that's increasingly happening. And so one thing that we can see is that in elite families, families where women previously um, had a very significant role in managing um, financial resources or land or credit or debt, that by, by from we'll say accelerating from the 1760s onward and especially post-revolution, that a woman's ability to distance herself from the messy, conflictual, day-to-day -day work of managing those finances becomes a marker of, of her elite privilege. Mm -hmm. And so more and more um, those activities are getting um, delegated to this professional cadre of lawyers and financial managers. And so there's also an element of professionalization mm -hmm. coming into play here. But I think the other way that we can think about it, as, as you mentioned, is um, broader transformations during, during the age of revolutions and during the revolutionary era. And so in, in a whole host of ways that, um, that we know of, uh, the body politic or the right to um, participate in meaningful, substantive ways in public culture and, uh, and political life, that is being increasingly defined as something um, accessible to white men and particularly to propertied white men. And so we could situate my story as, as part of that broader picture as well. Mm -hmm. um, what, um, so, so just to get this straight, it's not as if um, men in Newport and Boston, and let's add in the, in the early 19th century, uh, New London and uh, Nantucket, they're going away for long voyages. So one assumes that it would just be a simple necessity of women being involved in sort of financial matters and investments for the household um, in in New Bedford, uh, in in New London, in um, Nantucket. Um, do we have any studies on that, or is that your next book? I mean, it, to see the way that that women in certainly whaling ports continued to handle investments, even though they, at least on a, on a class level. Sure. And so there's actually been um, some fascinating work by, by other historians looking at some of those whaling communities. And so, so you're right, there is a degree of continuity there. And um, particularly for men who are going away to sea, uh, their wives are, are continuing to manage um, some of those, those financial matters. But again, there's, there's that class dimension. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing I would say here, right, is that the lines of, of difference or division only have resonance to the extent that you can point to someone else doing something differently. And so that kind of day-to-day -day work that a, that a lower class sailor's wife might be doing to sort of scrape by and keep her household afloat, that becomes very different from what an elite merchant's wife or merchant's widow um, is doing. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly there, there are still ways in which those women too are important sources of, of capital and um, resources for, for their families. Mm -hmm. um, 
I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. At the very beginning of the book, you talk about the you had a very romantic, at least for a historian, romantic archival evocation. Could you describe um, how you encounter these documents um, as physical objects, which I think um, increasingly where I'm so used to seeing stuff um, that some library has scanned for me and, and bless their heart. Thank them. For, I thank you that you've, you've done this. It's wonderful. It's going to transform scholarship in the 21st century, but there's something to finding a physical object in the archive. Could you, could you talk about that? Sure. So many of the court records I looked at, especially the court records from the lower courts have not been digitized. There are just, just far too many of them mm -hmm. for that ever to be practical. And so I will try to describe this in a way that makes sense solely on, on audio. So <laughs> when, when a case concludes, there are all of these different individual pieces of paper that, uh, that have been generated by the court. And so what the court clerk does is stack them all on top of each other, one on top of the other. So you have this big, um, big pile and then he trifolds it so that essentially the outermost piece of paper becomes a kind of sheath or an envelope for, for everything else in it, making a little packet. And then at the end of that, he either ties that packet together with, um, with some string or um, puts a straight pin through it to sort of pin everything together. And particularly in my research at the Rhode Island Judicial Archives, I was really fortunate to have extensive access to, to these records, some of which had never been previously opened by historians. And so there's a kind of moment of suspense there as you are the first person to undo this string or to pull out this straight pin that has been in there for 250 plus years. And um, I talk about in my introduction sort of wondering what kind of story is going to spring to life out of out of those records, and I found I was continually surprised and fascinated by by what I found in the court records. The first time you pulled, cut the string, I, I guess you were probably had asked maybe four or five times if it was okay to do that to a, an archivist, or, or or did they insist on doing it for you? It must have been a, a tremendous sort of struggle that first time. I, I imagine you've gotten used to it by now. It, it was. And, and I think one of the interesting things here, too, is the difference in the physical settings of different archives and the kinds of, of arrangements for researchers. And so um, public archives tend to be um, have wonderful records, but often slightly less resources to support support their researchers. And so I think in part for that reason, I was given a little bit more mm -hmm. um, leeway to handle the documents, certainly to handle them tremendously carefully, of course, and, and under supervision. And, but we can imagine that other, at other, um, say, private and wealthier archives, um, yeah. I would never be the one exactly. to pull out that pin or untie, I, untie that string. My, the first time I went to a county, a courthouse, a county courthouse, I was stunned by the casualness of the, them laying me see the the various suit books, um, which were all stacked up behind the county clerks, the clerk, all the assistant clerks, and they're just going to let me paw through these things, and and they didn't even know what they they couldn't believe some of these people had no idea that there were like suit books from the 1750s, uh, ten feet from them, 
They just, they didn't, why would they be there? Um, and then as you hear them answering the phone and trying to explain to someone that what, you know, what bail means and, you know, when they'll be able and when they're, you know, when their court date, all these other things, then you realize they've got other things on their mind at most uh, county courthouses and clerk's office rather than, um, you know, suits for drunkenness and disorderliness in the 1758. I, I love that you mentioned that because my experiences at the Rhode Island Judicial Archives sound a lot like yours um, in, I think, Virginia, yeah. you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, and for me as someone, right, who works on ordinary people's interactions with the law, that was <laughs> exactly. a very, a very thought provoking experience because if you call the archive today um, and you need a certain record pertaining to a recent legal matter mm-hmm. you found yourself in, um, your skill and ability to ask for that or your, your legal knowledge and ability to ask for that in the right way and ask the right questions is going to, in some ways, determine your success mm-hmm. in navigating that system. Yeah. And so too will the kindness and the patience of the person you're speaking to on the other end. And so the legal system is not just this big top-down thing consisting of amorphous laws, mm-hmm. it it comes to life through interactions between people. And that was the case in the 1700s. And, and that's, that's a, the case That's today, a lovely too. insight. And it, pervade, it actually, that pervades your book, explains where, uh, that, so you were getting this idea, this is being let, lodged into you, not just from the records you're studying, but also from what you were overhearing. And it makes that, that yeah, it's a lovely point. Um, I, I think one of the for people who um, you know people who listen to this podcast who want me to do more classical history or Chinese history we do all that um, but um, I think the larger sort of historical point that you're making is about the um, futility of believing that history points us to as what you call trajectories of linear progress could you could you finish up with that I mean that's that's sort of like your historiographical sort of your meta meditation, almost on the, on, of philosophical meditation that sort of this, this book lends itself to. Sure. And so I was struck by this again recently in the way in which people um, were talking about and celebrating the appointment of Janet Yellen as the first um, female secretary of the treasury mm-hmm. or the, um, or Kamala Harris as the first female vice president. And um, one of the many things that was getting referenced was that it wasn't until 1974 with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that a married woman could open up a bank account, for instance. And and that kind of narrative, I think, is, is one of linear progress that... Um, that society improves and and there's a pattern of necessarily increasing rights and liberties for people over time. And I think what history in fact shows us is that it's more of ebbs and flows or undulations. And so in the case of my work, um, as we've talked about, during the 1700s, due to a particular confluence of circumstances in these port cities, Women are active, essential participants in their financial and legal worlds, and that those opportunities and those openings due to a combination of cultural and legal factors are foreclosed or narrowed during the revolutionary era. And I should say, too, that um, the revolutionary era is often one that we like to celebrate as a kind of opening up of opportunities. And so um, right there, we can see um, 
an ebb and flow process mm-hmm. beginning. Um, and then during the 19th century, we talked about um, those ideas of the home, right? And the home being a 19th century term. So there, um, there too, we can see a narrowing. And I think ultimately this idea that we are not on a linear, inevitable trajectory of progress is tremendously important to remember because it reminds us of the power that we all have and in large and small ways to shape what our society looks like and that it's not not inevitable that progress will continue, but there, there are choices to be made. My guest today has been Sarah Damiano. She's author of To Her Credit, Women, Finance, and the Law in 18th Century New England, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And it has, by the way, I should say, fantastic maps, um, uh, which is always a pleasure for anyone who likes the to, to consult a map. These are, these are wonderful. Sarah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 